it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here on this Tuesday. I come to you today from Los Angeles. I have a Fox Nation shoot doing uh, part of what makes America great. Be back in studio tomorrow, but don't want to miss a minute of the show. Uh, we have a good uh, hour coming your way, especially because when you think about what's at stake today, there's a lot of times you look back in these big news stories. Other times there's uh, election stories and news stories. We have both Lieutenant Colonel Alan West at the bottom of the hour. Standing by is Andy McCarthy as the president heads up to, uh, to mourn with the victims of the Buffalo shooting. Uh, this 18-year-old, there's so many red flags in this guy's background, including uh, the fact in 2021 he was uh, talking about a murder-suicide and was interviewed by state police. Uh, meanwhile, he was still able to buy a gun, and his parents all knew he was off his rocker. Incredible. You know, it seems to me thoroughly preventable. But let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Title 42 is not an immigration policy. It is not an authority that the Department of Homeland Security holds, but rather it is a public health authority in the hands of the Centers for Disease Control. So they make that decision, and then we have to respond accordingly. Unbelievable. Uh, That is Mayorkas, just an embarrassment. His most severe sin. That's how I labeled the Biden administration was allowed to happen at the border. As at least 240,000 snuck into our country last month, Title 42 is set to expire, which could double that number. This would disqualify him for another term in my mind. And Dems are going to get blown away in the midterms primarily because of that. Number two. It's hard to tell what Biden's doing, to be totally frank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The real president is whoever controls the teleprompter. If somebody would accidentally lean on the lean on the teleprompter, it's going to be like Anchorman. It's going to be like QQQ ASDF one two three, you know, type of thing. Wow, Elon Musk calling out the president and who wouldn't refusing to play dumb. That's how I describe the emergence of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who can't pretend they don't know how bad the Biden bunch are on the economy and for this country as they tee off on the idiotic spending and refuse to play the villain, uh, or or actually. Uh, as the midterms approach. Number one. Senate seat is a must. It's an absolute must win. And he'll be able to do it. One of the candidates that Dr. Oz, as you know, is running against, David McCormick, is a candidate of the Wall Street and essentially Wall Street lobbyists. And we don't want people that are going to sell out to China. Well, he did deal somewhat in China, but I don't know if he's a sellout. Uh, Prepare for impact. The power of Trump is on the line as many primaries are on the docket today. We'll look at the intramural battles as we look to see if the voters are looking for the best of their party or the best candidate to win in November. So let's bring Andy McCarthy right now. Uh, Andy, uh, there's so much to talk about. First off, on on first blush, I want to talk about the Durham report as uh, jury selection is underway. Wrote a great column about it, put it all in perspective over the weekend. But with this Buffalo shooter, from what you know right now, the fact that this 18-year-old who just got a psychological exam and had a red flag with the state police in 2021. Should he be allowed to have gotten a gun? And if he was, is there a problem? 
Well, obviously, Brian, if he was, there was there's obviously a problem. But I think you hit on what the big concern is in your remarks before I came on, which is, you know, before we start thinking about what new laws we ought to pass, in, especially in New York, which has more gun laws than uh, than probably any place on the planet, um, I think we ought to find out. Did they enforce the laws that were on the books, and did they make full use of them on the basis of, you know, the, the yeah. zillion neon flashing signs that this guy was dangerous? And, you know, again, it, there are laws on the books that are known as red flag laws. Yeah. I, I, I guess the best way to explain this, Brian, is that we all have constitutional rights, right? We have uh, free speech, as we're demonstrating at the moment. We have, uh, you know, self-defense rights. We have privacy rights. There's no right that you have that's absolute, including your right to liberty, which the government can take away if you commit a crime and they give you due process and prove that you committed the crime. So it, with respect to every one of our rights, they can be restricted uh, on in certain situations if the government meets certain tests. So there is a due process available to cut off somebody's ability to own a firearm, but the state authorities have to do it. And what I'd be very interested in here is what the explanation is for the fact that they, you know, they had a threat from this kid. Uh, he, it was serious enough that he was uh, put under hospital uh, observation for a day and a half. I'd like to know what happened with all that. Yeah. What, did, what was the follow-up and what did they do? Um, you know, I don't, before we start passing 20 new laws that can, you know, that they cannot enforce, let's see how they did with this one. You know, the, I mean, the way to do it, obviously, is you get the last maybe 25 mass shootings, you know, from Sandy Hook on down. Maybe it's 50. And you just get a bipartisan council along with uh, gun, you know, uh, uh, gun experts and uh, criminal justice experts, and you put together, let's study this, see if there's some commonalities here, see if there's something we can work on. Because the minute someone says white supremacist, Democrats go, there we go, president's up in Buffalo. You have this uh, this black guy who hates white people, subway shooter, the president says, tragedy in New York, I'm in a, I'm in a rush. Waukesha parade, uh, steamrolling innocent people, they want to celebrate the holidays, I can't go to Wisconsin, it'll cause too much of an uproar. Right away we see politics in, tr- in tragedy. Why do we accept yep. this? Yeah, it, it, we, I think we really don't accept it, Brian. That's the reason that the Democrats are cruising for like a, what should be, unless the Republicans would never underestimate the ability of the Republicans to screw it up. But the reason the Democrats are headed for a thrashing in November is because of the blowback from all this stuff. When I go around the country, Brian, to talk, whether it's to talk about, uh, you know, yeah. counterterrorism or politics or whatever, what has people really angry is two tiers of justice. For example, they don't mind the idea that if somebody hit a police officer at the Capitol, that that person should be prosecuted. But they want even-handed justice across the board. And that's what you're not getting here, to the point where now, when we talk about terrorism, you know, every time something like this happens, we now have to have domestic terrorism laws. There are more than enough laws, federal and state, on the books to prosecute people who commit mass murder attacks. The only reason they're invoking terrorism is political. It's got nothing to do with law enforcement. We have all the law enforcement tools we need on the books to to deal with these cases. Uh, What they want to do is have the ability to basically attach the word terrorism to an ideology, attach it to this murderer, 
and by, you know, derivatively attach it to their political opponents. It's a game, and I think people are really angry about it. Uh, I, I, get, I really hope you're right. I, I want to move to another area, which I hope the country pays attention to. Uh, the trial has opened up in, in the, uh, the dorm. For his first trial is now uh, front and center. They're picking, some, uh, they're picking the jury uh, for Michael Sussman. Uh, Michael Sussman is the attorney who said he's unaffiliated, walked into the FBI and gave what we now know is erroneous information about a Trump link to Alpha Bank, Alpha Bank being a Russian bank. As the thing begins to unwind, first off on the jury selection, people are alarmed that you have Hillary Clinton donors and AOC supporters who are actually eligible for the jury. Yeah, well, you know, Brian, they have to get 12 people, <laughs> and it's Washington, which is like the most political town in the country. So hopefully the judge, as you point out, they, they not only, uh, you know, have jury selection, they've got a jury. They're actually starting with the opening statements and the evidence probably as we're speaking now. Um, but the jury, to my mind, is the biggest problem for Durham. You know, he's indicted two cases, right, the, the false statement against Sussman, and then there's a false statement case against this guy, Igor Danchenko, who gave the yep. information to the dossier. If you notice in the Danchenko trial, he indicted that in Virginia because there were things that Danchenko did that were in Virginia. So he had a, he, he had a choice of where he could bring the case. Here he had no choice. He had to bring it in Washington because the alleged false statement was in Washington. Um, but, you know, it's not, as I've said before, he's the government's lawyer, Durham, but this is not a home game for him in Washington. So, uh, so Sussman's going to come in, and he's going to produce notes that shows possibly that the FBI knew that he was working for the Clinton campaign. As he exonerates himself, he could muddy the waters for the FBI. Can you give me an idea of Sussman's defense? Well, I, it, Sussman's defense is materiality. And with the requirements of, uh, of law in a false statements case, so you have to prove that the person not only made a false statement, but that it was material. And what material means is that uh, if the FBI had known the true facts, they may have handled the information differently or analyzed it differently and, and so on. Uh, what Sussman, I, Sussman is probably giving up on the idea of trying to prove that he wasn't representing the Clinton campaign because there's too much evidence that he was. So what he's trying to, to do is go after what I've always thought is the soft underbelly of Durham's case, which is Durham's theory is that the FBI was duped here. And, you know, I, as you've been kind enough to mention, I wrote a book about the, uh, the Russiagate thing. And the theory and the reason that that was a story and that it was so outrageous was the idea that the FBI was like an open door uh, for information derogatory about Trump because they had decided that Trump yeah. was a bad guy. So you have to ask, were they really duped? Um, and what, what Sussman is going to try to say is, look, no matter what I said to the FBI, they knew I represented the Democratic Party. They knew I represented the Clinton campaign. Uh, and it's inconceivable that they did anything different on the basis of me telling them I was coming to them not representing anyone. I think Durham's answer to that, Brian, is if that's all true, why did you do it? You know, if you didn't think it would make a difference. And obviously, I think Sussman obviously knew it would make a difference because what he was trading on, and this is crucially important, he's not just some guy who showed up and said, I want to do this for the country because I'm a patriot. He was a Justice Department cybersecurity lawyer 
who worked for years with Jim Baker in the Justice Department. So he's coming at them not only as somebody who's saying he wants to be patriotic and help the Bureau, but as someone who is work, who is basically exploiting his reputation as someone who cares about the security mm-hmm. of the United States because he worked at the Justice Department for so long. And what people should understand is that this isn't about, well, well an attorney who worked for Clinton is in legal trouble. This is the beginning of setting up Trump for failure at the same time you bring up a, what we now know as a fake investigation, and then you leak some of this fake investigation to the press and say the FBI is looking into a possible link between Trump and Russia and banks and the Trump, uh, you know, the, uh, the Trump organization and banks, and then you leak that to the press. So the press begins to write the story. The FBI has the story. The CIA walks away from the story. And it becomes a self self perpetuating story. They keep adding layers to it, but there's it stands on a on a um, a stro- it, it stands on a house of cards because there is no case. Yeah, and, yeah. I also think you make an important point here, Brian, because the second time Sussman approached the government was in February of 2017. By which point Trump had been president for about three weeks already. So the thing is. They continued to push this even after Trump was in office. You know, they continued to go get go to the FISA court telling the FISA court under oath that, you know, Trump might be a clandestine agent of Russia. They continued to do that, you know, eight, nine months into his presidency. So this was not just you're quite right. This was not just a strategy to get Hillary Clinton elected, although that was the, that was the immediate objective. Uh, it was not only to set up Trump for failure, but but to try to make sure he failed. And as this happens, this guy, Dushenko, you think, oh, that's the Russian connection. This guy's in Russia. No, he's at the Brookings Institute. He's stateside. <laughs> and he's, he's yeah. stateside. He has a Russian name with Russia. He knows some grade schoolers. He sits around with two other people, and they come up with this uh, information that's hearsay, and they give it to Christopher Steele, and they're stunned that Steele puts it in a dossier. They can't believe it's in there. And one of the guys, Chuck yeah. Dolan, who has links back to Russia to the Clinton days when Yeltsin was president. We thought we could do business over there. He kept the contacts. And says, wait a second, this is none of this stuff is true. I, you know, why are you putting this in a dossier? Next thing you know, the dossier is on BuzzFeed. It's on CNN every hour, MSNBC every 30 minutes. And it begins to get a life of its own. They, they loop Jeff Sessions into thinking, they dupe him into thinking that he can't uh, try this case because he worked on the campaign. So he steps aside, in comes Mueller, and we lose millions of dollars and so many lives. Manafort in solitary confinement, Roger Stone in jail. And we see all this happening, and it was built on nothing, and it all starts here. That's why you pay attention. Yeah, and the one guy in the whole equation, Brian, who was credibly investigated by the FBI as a potential Russian operative was Danchenko. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, the guy who was the ultimate source for the dossier was investigated by the FBI in, was it 2011 or so? Yeah. Um, because they had reason to believe that he was actually a clandestine agent of Russia. So the guy who's the source of all this bunk information that where they try to frame Trump as a clandestine agent of Russia was himself investigated by the FBI for being a clandestine agent of Russia, and they didn't even go out and interview him before they went to the FISA court the first time. It's just unbelievable. So, Andy, do you, how do you what do you think is going to come happen to the Sussman trial? How many weeks is it going to be? It's the first time we're seeing Durham outside that headshot walking into court. Final minute. How do you see this going? I was impressed that they got a jury in one day. 
So I think the judge is going to move it along. Uh, he's not going to let him pull, prove the full sweep of the big scheme. That's the kind of framework for all this. He's going to try to keep them narrow to the false statement. So I think we could be done inside of two weeks. Um, and I think Durham's biggest problem from beginning to end is that Washington jury. That's what I'd be really worried about. Even though the case is is pretty strong and they were able to get some notes that uh, the Congress was not able to get to uh, to back up this case. So look at the evidence and then see where Durham goes from here, right? That's right. There's no, we'll see. we got Danchenko to come, and he says he's not necessarily finished, so there could be more charges. He is Andy McCarthy. He is all over this. And believe me, just this Durham case matters. If you're independent, if you're moderate, if you're just uh, dialing this in, pay attention and go back and read Sunday, uh, Andy McCarthy's Sunday column. Uh, he'll, he'll get you up to date. Andy, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. one 866 408 When we come back, your phone calls. Uh, and then Alan West, don't move. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Senate seat is a must. It's an absolute must win. And he'll be able to do it. One of the candidates that Dr. Oz, as you know, is running against, David McCormick, is a candidate of the Wall Street and essentially Wall Street lobbyists and the special interests. It's not what we want. We don't want people that are going to sell out to China. I put in taxes and tariffs to China. They paid hundreds of billions of dollars. Nobody ever got 10 cents from China until I came along. And Oz is a big believer in what I did. And that's very important. So he's the wrong candidate, McCormick, for the uh, the wrong time, the wrong place. When Kathy Barnett and uh, Mehmet Oz and David McCormick were, according to the latest poll, as today is, is the big primary day, uh, according to the latest poll, are basically in a dead heat. That, according to Trafalgar, which tends to lean right, not that, which really actually makes it even more relevant. They're all trying to replace Pat Toomey, who's retiring. Uh, McCormick, Oz, and Barnett all say that they are pro-Trump, but Trump's pick is Mehmet Oz. And we're looking at uh, a lot today. I mean, we're looking at polls closing uh, in North Carolina today, uh, tonight, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Idaho, Oregon, and Kentucky. And we'll keep you up to date on what's happening. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I mean, this administration just just, it doesn't seem to get a lot done. Like, and, you know, um, whatever, like... 
The, the Trump administration, leaving Trump aside, I, there, there were a lot of people in the administration who were effective at getting things done. So uh, this, this administration seems just just to not have like the drive to just get it done. Uh, that 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 that's my it's it's that's my impression. Elon Musk speaking a lot about the administration, and frankly, he's fed up. He's fed up with being vilified, being left out of every time they bring bring up some type of green energy. They never invite the guy from Tesla uh, because they didn't like him and they don't. And they're avoiding him. It's like avoiding Thomas Edison. You might not like him, but man, when the war happens, they ask Thomas Edison to come up with some ideas. Henry Ford, too. You you get the best of the best of that time and the generation and you put politics aside and you say, how do we help here? And one guy that really tells me, Jeff Bezos, a left, uh, a, a liberal by almost all accounts, he is going after the administration the same way Elon Musk is. What's behind that? Lieutenant Colonel Alan West has seized the economic principles, seized the wide open border, seized what happens in Afghanistan, and never has been sold on President Biden. So it didn't surprise, would not surprise you to hear him call them to task. But Colonel, does it surprise you that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is doing it? Well, it's good to be with you, Brian, and good morning to you. You know, in life, there are certain principles, there are certain things that work, and still two plus two equals four. And if you are pumping a lot of money into an economy, you're going to uh, cause inflationary uh, issues for your economy. If you are going to undermine your uh, energy independence and, you know, cut cut off your nose to spite your face in pursuit of green uh, energy uh, that has really not matured, then you're going to go and beg OPEC nations. And so I think that people are starting to look at this and say, this is not just about Republican or Democrat or whatever. This is about common sense. This is about doing the things that work. And so uh, 16 months ago, we were in a position where we saw the things that work with our economy, yeah. with our energy, with our foreign policy. And now look at where we are. You know, I watched the interview with Pete Buttigieg about this baby milk formula thing, and he said government doesn't make baby milk. Well, okay, but you kept this plant shut down from Abbott uh, Laboratories when you should allow them to to open back up and go back to producing the baby milk after the government FDA found that they were cleared, but they didn't do that. So what what you do is the FDA is in charge, yes. A whistleblower came forward, yes. Was the charges legitimate? Absolutely. So what you do is you get this word in September. Uh, you, it's a it's a it's a five alarm fire in December. It's brought to your attention in February by um, by uh, the congresswoman uh, from upstate New York. Um, she comes forward and says, "Listen, this is a huge problem." And then in uh, May, you said, "I've done everything, but I don't make formula. I am not a mind reader." What you do is you lean on the FDA to say, "Wait, there's only four companies here." And while you get your act cleaned up, how long is this going to take? Is it going to take that long? That's fine. We're going to lift restrictions. We're going to allow other nations to be able to sell us baby formula. Then we're going to re-examine why only four companies make it and why they make 40% of the entire market. You know, we are 43% down. That affects uh, uh, an overall baby formula. That affects 2.7 million babies. And mm-hmm. your answer is, I'm not a mind reader. Have you ever seen, a? have you ever heard a stupider answer? No, I have not. And it begs the question, you know, are they doing cabinet meetings? 
Are they sitting down and having briefings about these things and starting to talk about uh, solutions instead of just going from crisis to crisis or looking how that they can expand upon a certain crisis? I mean, you know, the president's flying off to Buffalo today uh, to, to use that, to, to I'm sure, for, you know, gun control and things of that nature when and white supremacy. the problem is the— and white supremacy, but yet when you have the black gentleman that attacked the subway in New York, I didn't see anyone run into New York City about that. When you had the uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, where he drove through the uh, Christmas parade, I didn't see anybody, you know, rushing there. Or even the grocery store shooting in Boulder, Colorado, when they found out he was a Syrian, nobody was rushing out there. So, you know, when you start to politicize everything, then you really forget about the fundamental principles and how you want to govern a country, not try to uh, rule over it, which I think that's what the left wants to do. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, it's always noteworthy. You know, I've always been now every Monday I play Bill Maher, who is calling out those protesters in front of Supreme Court justice houses who talked about the mm-hmm. stupidity of a disinformation zone and her being the worst candidate possible. And it doesn't make me think that he's going to vote anyway Democratic, but he just is speaking logic. And that's why I think that the worst is over with this idiocy that we're experiencing now. Although I'm watching a kid get suspended by for refusing to use a uh, the right pronoun to a classmate, things like that make me wonder. But I uh, but I also think that in the big picture, the American people are fed up with this uh, the whole, this whole huge transgender push of making everybody intolerant if they're not if they're not seg- uh, gender gender fluid. It's I'm done with it, and I think most other people are. I'm, I'm going to bring it to Jeff Bezos. They are done with it. Yeah. Yeah, because they're suffering. Uh, you know, when when you're having to make a decision about can I pay bills or can I eat, when you're making the decision about can I fill up my gas tank and, and can I take my family on a vacation or, or what? Uh, so they are tired of it. They, they don't want to hear any more about I'm not a biologist and I can't explain what a woman is. Yeah. So Jeff Bezos is looking what's going on right now, and he hears that he wants the billionaires to pay their fair share. The problem is people aren't paying their taxes. So Jeff Bezos comes back with this. Uh, he says, look, a squirrel. This is the White House's statement about my recent tweets. They understandably want to muddy the topic. They know inflation hurts the neediest the most, but unions ca- aren't causing inflation, and neither are wealthy people. Remember, the administration tried their best to add another $3.5 trillion to federal spending. They failed. But if they had succeeded, inflation would be even higher than it is today. And inflation today is at a 40-year high. These are guys who clearly have another level of, of genius. They are going to go down in the history books. Yet when things get tough, they are blamed. And I just like the fact that they're sticking up for themselves, even though, as Elon Musk says, he's never voted for a Republican. To me, that gives me the sense that America is waking up. It is waking up. And again, I, I would say that the fault lines are becoming less about Republican Democrat. It's about principles. It's about reason. It's about the things that work and the things that don't work and the focus of the government and what they should be doing instead of going down. And as you talked about, chasing critical race theory or cultural Marxism or some of these other very insidious uh, ideologies. So when you're looking at a 
and a group of people who are focused on mobocracy instead of being focused on representative democracy, and you're allowing certain individuals to go and protest out the homes of Supreme Court justices, but now you're going to demonize and castigate parents who are talking about their kids at school board meetings as domestic terrorists. The hypocrisies are just so blatant right now, and I think that the captains of industry, like the Jeff Bezos, like the Elon Musk, they're seeing this thing and saying, you're doing harm to us. You know, we're trying to build businesses. We're trying to grow businesses. We're trying to hire Americans. And you're doing everything that's counterproductive to that end. So uh, I'm in California now doing something for Fox Nation, uh, but still able to do the show at our L.A. Bureau. And Elon Musk talked about leaving L.A. And he said, this is the reality yesterday. Cut 17. If you, if you had gone to Gavin's head, okay, um, and said, we need to build, start building this factory in California right now, he couldn't do it because there are so many uh, regulatory agencies um, and so many uh, litigators in California that want to stop you from doing anything that even if you're the governor of the, of the state, you cannot get it done. California's gone from the land of opportunity to, to the land of, of, of sort of taxes, uh, overregulation and litigation, and th- this is not a good situation. And really, this has got to be like a, a, a serious cleaning out of the pipes in California. Right, and and for him to speak up matters. But Gavin Newsom, it's easy to ver- uh, to vilify a governor, but Schwarzenegger found the same thing too. Not only couldn't he move because of the Democratic state, but he couldn't move because of the regulations and the environmentalists. And that's why people go to Texas and Florida, two places you've lived in. Yeah, absolutely. And think about in California where, you know, the whole issue about water distribution or the whole issue about the fires that they're having out there because they refuse to clear the underbrush. I mean, when you are allowing the mob to rule and the mob to set the uh, legislative agenda, and when you're allowing a very leftist uh, ideological agenda to take over – that defies common sense, this is what you get. You get California, or you get New York, or you get some of these other blue states that are failures. I mean, even look at the COVID response when you compare most of your red states. Look at Ron DeSantis and what they did in Florida as opposed to California or New York. So these things are becoming blatantly obvious. And again, the captains of industry have to, you know, they have to vote based upon sound economic principles. So I just want to real quick get you on the war. You know, uh, Mariupol, it looks like those 260 fighters that were left evacuated. Nobody faults them for that. But it looks like the Russians are solidifying certain gains uh, in that area. Uh, We know about the NATO gaining two other uh, nations. Turkey's protesting. So I say get rid of Turkey. But having said that, Ukraine has ordered the surrender of the steel plant, which means they lost Mariupol. Uh, Dozens of Mm -hmm. Ukrainian fighters are okay, but they're out. So now the Russians have a border area from Crimea um, uh, stretching all the way across uh, the area. So they picked up about 500 miles. So they're able to hold the south but not take the port uh, and take the port area. Uh, Do you think the Ukrainians should have as a hope and aspiration to push them out, a conceivable one, or go for talks now because they have had success in Kharkiv and Kiev? 
Well, when you think about what Russia is doing, creating that land bridge and, of course, uh, taking those southern ports, that's going to affect the grain shipments that are going going out, and that's going to be a second and third order ramification for the rest of the world. Uh, now, you may have Mariupol. You may have these areas, but now how do you hold them? How do you sustain them? How do you make sure that you can get support to to those people that are there? Because now you got to fight an insurgency. And the Ukrainians are not just going to give up, and the Ukrainians are not just going to go away. And when you look at the logistical supply lines to go down to uh, southern Ukraine along the coast, those are very extended, not like how you have there in eastern Ukraine, Donbass, Donetsk region, which is closer to Russia. So I think that, you know, without a doubt, Russia wants to try to, Vladimir Putin wants to try to say, here we've gotten gains, but now you're going to be able to hold on to these gains. And and you're right, Turkey, just say goodbye to them. I mean, Turkey is not, Erdogan is not a friend to the United States of America or truly to NATO. Yeah, uh, and Sweden and Finland are already spending 2%. They have great air forces. They understand the yeah. West, have already been meeting with NATO uh, on a regular basis and running exercises. So they're going to be an asset. They're not going to be a liability. We don't have to convert their arms or build up their economy. So uh, unlike Turkey, uh, who they say that they don't like the fact that the Swedes – Support the Kurds. Uh, too bad. Uh, we so we support the Kurds. So um, I'm curious to see how this shakes out. Uh, Colonel Alan West, by the way, uh, the Colonel's got a brand new podcast out. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, attainable. It's called uh, Steadfast and Loyal. And where do we get it? Uh, you can get it on some of the uh, on my YouTube channel right now. We're going to be expanding out to Spotify, some of the others, and mm-hmm. uh, it comes out every Thursday evening. It's about an hour and a half to an hour and fifty minutes. Uh, last week we uh, looked at the issue of illegal immigration. This week we want to look at religious liberty. Gotcha. Uh, it sounds great, Colonel. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. God bless. All right, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I'll take your calls when we come back. Brian Kilmeade Show. Glad you're here. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. You don't know what the heck is going on. Why is one tweet doing well? Why is another tweet not? Is it, is it the algorithm? Did someone manually intervene? Uh, why are some accounts banned uh, with no recourse, apparently? Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the reality is uh, that, that Twitter at this point, you know, has uh, a very far left bias. Um, and I, I would class myself as, as a moderate and you know, neither Republican nor, nor Democrat. Um, and in fact, uh, I have voted voted overwhelmingly for Democrats uh, historically, overwhelmingly. Like, I, I'm not sure I, I might never have voted for a Republican, just to be clear. So it's amazing what Elon Musk has done. First off, I want to buy Twitter and everyone went crazy. And he said, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't. Then he comes back and says, you know, I think I'm going to buy it. OK, I got the, I got the funding. I'm going to do it. Well, and, and Jack Dorsey's for it. Great. He's going to buy it. He said, you know what? I'm going to put this on pause. I don't know how many real users we have. Only 5%. I'm not sure, but I'm still going to go through with it. And then he makes that statement. And there's no statement that he makes that is unintent. It doesn't have intent to it. He's trying to drive the, the price down. And he also is exposing it. I think there's a billion-dollar penalty if he walks away from this. 
I'm not sure a billion means as much to him as it would be to you and me. But is he also trying to expose it at the same time and weaken it to the point where if he does not do this deal and they do not come around to his terms about exposing exactly what are bots, what are active users, what are users, because it adjusts the price. And we know what's happened to the market over the last two weeks since he really, three weeks since he made it clear that he wants it and it looked like he was going to get it. And it was just a matter of form, just going through it and, and securing the financing, and which I think he's done in principle. But now what's left of it? If Elon Musk says, yeah, you know what, uh, they're not going to come down. I don't believe there's many users out there. I, I think it's much more than 5% bots. I think it's 40% bots. So I'm going to walk away. Who wants to be on Twitter then? Who's going to waste their time after it's got exposed by Elon Musk and they decide we're not going to expose this information to you, which means intended guilt, sadly. They'll say the only reason you won't prove that there's 5% bots on Twitter is because there's more. So you, Musk has total power in this situation. So they're going to have a whole bunch of people quit. And then if Musk walks away, the value is going to plummet. And this, all Republicans are going to get right out of it because they said it's a waste. And you just heard what he said. It has a left-wing bias. And I've never, he doesn't think, ever voted for a Republican. We have been saying this from day one. But it doesn't matter unless guys like that come out and do what they do. We see what's happening with the spending. Build Back Better is Joe Biden's answer to this uh, economy that is sucking wind, not growing. He taunts to the jobless. He points to low unemployment as a big plus. So we'll talk about that. But today is going to be huge for the President uh, Trump. I really believe, especially when it comes to, uh, to Dr. Oz. We know how talented the Dr. Oz is on his feet. We know how, uh, how conversational it is and how much he has the issues down. Uh, we know that he is campaigned extremely hard, not like somebody who's a multimillionaire, uh, 13-year star on syndicated television. Dave McCormick wanted Trump's endorsement. He has Pompeo. He has Senator Cruz. He has Hope Hicks. Uh, he has so many people around him. If McCormick wins, Trump looks terrible. If Barnett wins, Trump looks awful. And the Republican Party, as much as I, I think Kathy's got tremendous potential. The fact that she's out there with the Proud Boys in a picture on January 6th, regardless how you feel, is devastating in a general. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I appreciate you being here. I'm actually 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, but the, but the nucleus of the staff, uh, Eric, Pete, and Allison, are at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. And you're listening to this from around the country, I hope, and around the world, especially in the Ukraine. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by Senator Tom Cotton and uh, Cameron Haynes. If you want to be inspired, not that Senator Tom Cotton is inspirational. Uh, Cameron Haynes is the one-stop shopping. I mean, the name of his book tells it all, especially if you're looking for that little oomph to put you over the top now that spring is here. It's called Endure, How to Work Hard, Outlast, and Keep Hammering, forwards by Joe Rogan. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Title 42 
is not an immigration policy. It is not an authority that the Department of Homeland Security holds, but rather it is a public health authority in the hands of the Centers for Disease Control. So they make that decision and then we have to respond accordingly. Right, because uh, the Republican governors have sued the federal government to stop Title IV from being uh, Title 42 from being lifted. While at the same time, the government is begging for more COVID aid, right? Title 42 is there because of the pandemic. They're telling us they need money because of the pandemic, but they also tell us we have to lift it because the pandemic is over. Right. Number two. Man, it's hard to tell what Biden's doing, to be totally frank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The real president is whoever controls the teleprompter. If somebody would accidentally lean on the, lean on the teleprompter, it's going to be like Anchorman. It's going to be like QQQ, ASDF, one, two, three, you know, type of thing. Elon Musk, unbelievable, hysterical, right? Refusing to play dumb. That's how I describe the emergence of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who can't pretend they don't know how bad the Biden bunch is on the economy and for the country as they tee off on his idiotic spending and refuse to play the villain for him. Number one. Senate seat is a must. It's an absolute must win. And he'll be able to do it. One of the candidates that Dr. Oz, as you know, is running against, David McCormick, is a candidate of the Wall Street and essentially Wall Street lobbyists. And we don't want people that are going to sell out to China. Well, that is President Trump doubling and tripling down with Dr. Oz. Prepare for impact. The power of Trump is on the line as the primaries are on the docket today. In many key states, we're going to look at the intramural battles. Let's bring in Senator Tom Cotton. Senator, I didn't see you getting involved much in these anointing of candidates uh, during the primary season. Am I correct? Hey, Brian, it's good to be on with you. Um, You know, sometimes I'll weigh in for candidates, especially if I've known them in past lives. Um, I especially have a uh, focus on young veterans running for house races. I remember what it was like to be a young veteran running for a house race and the support uh, that so many of my uh, uh, vet- fellow veterans gave me. So folks like Mike Gallagher or, or Dan Crenshaw or Jim Banks, uh, I've helped in their first races. Occasionally I'll endorse in a, in a Senate race. Um, oftentimes it's when the, the primary is pretty well settled um, or uh, sometimes they're not even primary at all, like up in Washington State where we have a great candidate, Tiffany Smiley, um, who everyone on your uh, program should know about. Uh, but in these large multi-candidate races uh, where we have many accomplished and distinguished candidates, I tend to let the voters of those states work it out. Uh, we have five great people running in Pennsylvania, and I, I wish them all well tonight. And when the voters uh, uh, in the Republican primary have spoken in Pennsylvania, I'll be eager to campaign for our nominee to make sure uh, that they keep that seat in the Republican column this fall. Well, it's going to be interesting because I look at also a place like Oregon nobody's talking about, but Kate Brown is so unpopular. She's term limited out. There's 19 Republican candidates. I mean, it just gives you hope that some of these states are sobering up, that Democrats are letting their states uh, fall apart. They really are, and and I think we have a chance to win some gubernatorial elections in fairly Democratic states because uh, voters are just sick and tired of the shutdowns uh, and the restrictions, the masking requirements, maybe coming back in New York now, I've read in the news, Brian. Um, They're tired of Democrats lecturing parents uh, about what their kids are learning in school and our parents shouldn't be involved in school. And they're sick and tired of the, the crime and the homelessness you see out in Los Angeles. 
us on almost every street corner. Uh, you saw it last fall in Virginia, Brian, a, a fairly Democratic state these days that elected a Republican governor to stop this madness. And I think you could see it in many other states across the country. Absolutely. So uh, I know that what's going on in the Ukraine is kind of uh, starting to divide the Republican Party. I want you to hear what Senator Haggerty said on Sunday. I certainly don't have anything against the Ukrainians. We want to see them win. But pumping more aid yeah. into that country, when we're not taking care of our own, own country, the best thing that Biden could do is stop the war that he's waged on American industry. That would lower prices overall. That would take the funding away from Putin's war machine against Ukraine. It would make our economy do better here. Biden will not do that. Yeah. Senator, uh, Senator, excuse me, Congressman Crenshaw feels differently. Who else does it give sticker shock to? Vladimir Putin. So Vladimir Putin has a, has a military that's been degraded severely. Their morale is extremely low. Their supply chains are in, are in critical condition. And now he just is realizing that his opponents, the Ukrainians, are going to have basically an unlimited amount of resources to continue fighting this war. This is an investment in the severe degradation of our second biggest adversary, the Russian military. They will not be able to invade other countries after this and destabilize the globe. That allows us to do something. It allows us to focus on our actual biggest adversary, which is China. Well, I'm firmly in the Crenshaw camp, and the way he laid it out is perfect. We're not fighting there, but we can benefit in a big way. And we can let Europe start defending itself with a bulked-up NATO. What is, where do you stand? I know you respect well, people on both sides in your party. So, Brian, I supported uh, this latest bill, um, but it's just a good example of what happens when democratic weakness co- contributes to these foreign policy crises. There would not be a war in Ukraine if Joe Biden had been tougher and stronger with Russia last year and had not conciliated at every turn and given them concessions. Now there is a war, and it's important that we help Ukraine win that war. I'll just make a few points about that bill, Brian. First off, a lot of the funding goes to our own military to ensure that our troops have the weapons and munitions they need to protect themselves and ultimately to keep this country safe and free, to say nothing of our partners in Europe and the Western Pacific, especially Taiwan. Uh, Second, what we're doing to support Ukraine right now is very similar to what Ronald Reagan did to support Afghanistan when Russia invaded it in the 1980s. Uh, Our country depends on beachheads and lodgments of freedom across the old world. That's why we have treaty allies like NATO and South Korea and Japan and the Philippines and and Thailand. Um, The last thing America can ever tolerate is any adversarial power combining the people and the resources and the territory of the old world to use against us here in the new world, especially with modern military and communications technology. Third and final, I'd say um, that uh, it's not just Vladimir Putin and Europe that's watching. The rest of the world is watching, and most particularly Xi Jinping is watching what happens in Ukraine. And if he sees the United States and the West faltering after a few months and pressing Ukraine to sue for peace while Russian troops are still on Ukrainian soil, he is much more likely to go for the jugular in Taiwan, which, despite the war in Ukraine, remains the most dangerous flashpoint in the world today. So yesterday on Russian TV, a defense columnist gave a damning assessment of Russia's war in Russia to Russians in an hour long. uh, It's an hour long and said that the Russians are not doing well. They've been isolated around the world. The Ukrainians are having uh, success. And he mentioned the deaths and destruction and how poorly they've done. This could be the beginning of the end 
maybe for this guy, number one, but number two, it might be the go sign to other people to start speaking their minds. What do you hear? Yeah. So I don't think there's any question uh, that the Russian military has not performed up to Vladimir Putin's expectations. And I don't think he denies that privately and, and increasingly people can't even deny it publicly in, in Russia. His rhetoric from late February to his military objectives now have a vast mismatch. And at, at best, they may be able to fight to a stalemate in eastern Ukraine and try to consolidate the hold in the territories they have. I don't think Ukrainians will ever accept that. Even if the Ukrainian government were pressured by Washington and Rome and Berlin and Paris to take such uh, a settlement. I don't think the Ukrainians living under Russian rule would take that. We've seen what happens in the areas that Russia seized and then relinquished after the Ukrainian army drove them out. Um, and the Ukrainian people living in places like Kherson or uh, Mariupol or Donetsk or Luhansk are not going to be satisfied and not going to accept in the long run living under Russian control. Um, so I, I think right now you have a battle that's going on in, in the east that although it may have be a stalemate at the moment, could turn into a decisive Ukrainian victory. And, and I would sign that, define that victory very simply. No more Russian troops on Ukrainian soil. Wow. Uh, and that would be – that means you don't enter into talks, and our Secretary of Defense says it's time for a truce. So, Well, I, you know, I would say this, Brian. So, so – ne- Not I, not you, not Lloyd Austin, not Joe Biden can speak for the Ukrainian people. They have a president. That president uh, can lead the country and make the decisions that he thinks is in his country's best interest. If at some point he decides to pursue settlement negotiations that are different than what you or I would propose, that is his prerogative as the leader of a sovereign state. What we should not do which I worry some Western leaders are thinking about doing, is beginning to put political pressure on President Zelensky to sue for peace and cut a bad deal while he still has the momentum on the battlefield. And I really hope we don't get to the point where we are refusing to provide them the arms they need to defend themselves, not to conduct wars of aggression, but to defend their own territory from a war of aggression as a way to put pressure on them to sue for peace. And I look at guys like you and Dan Crenshaw who actually fight in wars in the infantry, and you understand uh, what war brings, a lot of horror. But uh, without it, sometimes you're never going to get justice. So, uh, Senator, you also have an exciting exciting news. You have a book that's coming out uh, November 15th, but available now to pre-order. So to reserve your copy, it's called Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power. Um, In what way? So I can see this book, Brian, after the debacle in Afghanistan last August. Um, I got asked by so many Arkansans, how could this happen? Why did Joe Biden do this? How did it come to pass? And, and it's really of a piece with so many other Democratic debacles, Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy and Johnson both in Vietnam, Clinton and Mogadishu. These are not accidents. They're not bad luck. These Democrats are not naive and inept, or at least they're not only naive and inept. Going back 100 years to Woodrow Wilson, Democrats have tried to undermine and sabotage American power and weaken America in the world. They do not believe that strong, competent, assertive leadership formed on the basis of military power is good for the world or good for America. They became ultimately what the great Gene Kirkpatrick 
Ronald Reagan's UN ambassador called the Blame America First Democrats. And of course, Barack Obama was the culmination of all those trends, a president who intentionally tried to retrench and accommodate America to our adversaries in the world. And in many cases, simply tried to apologize and atone for the sins that they perceived America had committed against countries like Cuba and Iran. Again, this is not an accident or a mishap. This is what Democrats want. It's like the Iran nuclear deal. People used to ask me, why does, not, why does Barack Obama not get a better deal? And the answer is he doesn't want a better deal. He wants to elevate Iran and empower them in the Middle East. So I tell the inside story of what is behind this century of democratic foreign policy weakness and fiascos. Gotcha. Uh, all right. Looks great. It's out in November. Uh, it's out in November 15th, and you can reserve your copy now. Uh, Senator, thanks so much. Brian, thank you. Good to be on with you. Be safe out in L.A. Uh, you, you're right. I'll be back tomorrow. All, all good, I'm sure. Uh, and the name of the book is Only the Strong. When we come back, your turn. 1-866-408-7669. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, the impact of today's big primaries around the country. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's lots of people who are still figuring out who they're going to vote for. And they're zeroed in and they're asking themselves three questions. Who's going to represent and fight for the conservative values that I hold dear? Who can win the general election in November because the stakes are so high? And then who can get to the Senate and make a big difference on day one? That is Dave McCormick. Uh, listen, uh, I think he's unbelievably qualified. I don't think he's, he's the most dynamic speaker. He doesn't say much, but it doesn't mean he doesn't know a lot. He's one of these candidates, I think, who said, you know, I'm just going to run as a conservative. I'm going to try to get his I'm gonna do the primary, and I'm going to tell everyone how competent I am. I mean, think about it. A wrestling star at West Point goes and serves in the Persian Gulf War. Now becomes, a, I believe, an Army Ranger. I'm not positive about that. And then goes into business. First, he serves the government. During the whole crash, he was under a Secretary of uh, Treasury, the Deputy Secretary of Treasury, and helps marshal what I think is a, a pretty solid foundation to bring the economy back in 2008 after the banking collapse. So then he goes into Bridgewater, becomes CEO, and becomes ridiculously rich and successful. So that's a pretty good resume. I mean, these are the types of people that were left and right you want going into the government that don't really need the money, but they, they feel as though they want to give back to their country. I've met him. Also, Dr. Oz. Many of you, I don't know if you've seen Dr. Oz's wealth. I mean, he's worth billions of dollars. He gave up a show that was going to be renewed again after 14 years. He is a heart surgeon that could operate tomorrow and is very active uh, in the medical community. Is obviously a very good talk show, so he's a very good communicator. These are necessary qualities, and they're both going against each other. Kathy Barnett's come at it uh, nowhere. I like the nowhere story, but uh, huge problems in her background that's going to stop her from winning the general. And I think Republicans already know what it was like when they nominated some people that could not possibly win because they were Tea Party candidates at the time. Tea Party is uh, taking a pounding. Uh, we know all about that. So what else is going on? So you got the tech, the 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 U.S. Senate GOP primary in Pennsylvania. That matters. Uh, you have the governors running. D- Doug Mastriano is the pick over Lou Barletta is uh, in Pennsylvania. A lot of people in the Trump world are upset by that because Lou Barletta, when he was congressman, he was the one that 
was one of the first to endorse outside center sessions, uh, President Trump. But maybe President Trump says, listen, I love Lou, can't win the whole thing. That's why you would do it. And sometimes it looks like you're not being loyal, but then you want to be practical. Uh, that's pretty important. Uh, in Oregon, as I mentioned with Senator Tom Cotton, they got 19 Republican candidates who are vying for the nomination because they think that Oregon is ready to flip. They're convinced of it because Kate Brown is so awful. There's the, the state has been run into the ground. It's got enormous potential, and they've just gone so woke, they've gone over the top. Real quick, on the, in, the, in Pennsylvania side, on the Democratic nomination, Connor Lamb was favored to win. He's known as somewhat of a middle-of-the-road uh, middle guy that might be able to replace Toomey, but he's been beat by Fetterman. But Fetterman announced a couple of days ago that he had a stroke and tweeted out some pictures with his family. I'm glad he's okay, but he does not look good. So now in Pennsylvania, do you go for Connor Lamb because you know he can compete when Fetterman walking around with a hoodie and shorts on and flip-flops had, had pretty much locked up the nomination? I'm not too sure about that, but we'll see. Uh, of course, they're not the only ones in North Carolina. A lot of intrigue. Ted Budd has surged since Trump endorsed him over Pat McCrory, successful talk show host, former governor of that state. It looks like he'll get the nomination. Uh, on the Senate side. So that's pretty interesting. Keep it here. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, somebody will inspire you and motivate you. Cameron Haynes. You've never quite heard from anyone like him. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I think it's safe to say I'm only going to interview one bow hunter this week, and it's coming up right now. His name is Cameron Haynes. He's an author, entrepreneur, podcast host, uh, and backcountry bow hunter, and author of a brand new book called Endure, How to Work Hard, Outlast, and Keep Hammering. Cameron, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you. Cameron, describe what you do. What I do is I take my bow and arrow, I go into the mountains, and I try to kill an animal and if that works out i bring the meat home and that's what my family eats really you don't want to shop no no i mean I, i'll uh you know who doesn't like a good beef steak but if i can avoid it and we just survive on solely what i kill wild game meat in the mountains and that's right. that's what i do and uh yeah that's my goal but by that time, all you do, I mean, you also, I mean, you were basically trained with an ultra marathoner every day for you seems like a, a physical test. And that's why you yeah. wrote the book Endure. If people do not have the, the, the low pulse rate that you have uh, and the <clears throat> gumption that you've displayed, can they benefit from this? Yeah, I mean, the, the premise of the book is it's not really about bow hunting. It's not a hunting book at all. It's about I was a small town kid who, uh, you know, didn't really have any direction, didn't have much going. It's not like I was getting good grades or scholarships or some elite athlete. I was going to work in the logging woods back home. I, I, I live out west in Oregon, and logging is the industry out there. And I thought, well, I'm going to be a choker setter, which means you're working in the woods with getting timber out, hauling it to the mill. And uh, through bow hunting, this journey has taken me to where now here we are. I'm on your show talking about a book about how to navigate life with the chips, all the chips down and everything seemingly against you. And, and it doesn't, doesn't mean that your destiny is sealed. You can do whatever and be whoever you want. 
And and you grew up, uh, describe your upbringing, divorced parents, not easy, right? You did not have the highest self-esteem. No, I, I didn't have much confidence. You know, uh, my dad wasn't around. Um, they they were divorced when I was pretty young. And stepdad issues, you know, no no kid really likes a stepdad, it seems like. Or I didn't. I wasn't the easiest kid to raise either way. But, yeah, it was just, I, I don't know, it was a hard time. But, uh, you know, through adversity, we are become resilient. And that's what happened to me. And I just learned how to not, I didn't need support. I just needed to chase my dreams, stay focused, eliminate distractions like alcohol, which, you know, I struggled with too for a while, just like my, my dad and stepdad. But, you know, if you stay on the course and over time, who knows, you can make an impact and make this a better world. When did you go from the, a kid looking for a direction to somebody who's got this ultra focus? I think the the biggest thing was when I had a son myself, when my son Tanner was born, I was still in my 20s. I was young. Now I have three kids. But that was like the time because it's one thing to be a loser going out drinking on the weekends and being aimless. It's another thing to be a loser dad because now you're impacting uh, somebody else, somebody who looks at you and looks up to you and is looking to you for guidance. Now, if, if you're a loser and doing that, I that was hard for me to stomach. So that was, I still struggled. I still had ups and downs, but that was really the kickstart I needed to get more focused and just be an example. And and so you went from, okay, you were a better example, but then you took it to another level. What did you start testing yourself mentally and physically doing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just been a journey the whole time. It's, you know, I, I wrote this the other day on my social media. It's like when I was walking, it seemed like through life and my eyes were down on the ground. And then all of a sudden your eyes raise up. And you're like, hey, there's, you know, my world wasn't very big. And now I'm looking at the horizon. And then all of a sudden I was looking at the mountaintops just literally and figuratively. And I'm like, well, I, I want to be this bow hunter. I want to have this endurance. What if I could go to the ruggest, most rugged mountains and have the most endurance and run and be able to do whatever I want and have this confidence? And so that journey, I started training for that. So like everybody, I started with a 5K, then a 10K, half marathon, marathon, a 50K, which is 30 miles. And then you go up to a 100-mile ultramarathon race. I didn't even know people did. Well, I did that in 2009. And now – you know, I've done a 240-mile race. And so as you go through this and you learn more about your body and what you're capable of and, and that mindset shifts and and uh, you want to continue to test your limits and see, you know, you've had these shackles on your whole life and, you're, and you realize they were self-imposed. And now you're – now I look for the most elite athletes and I, I want to train with them to take something from them that, that can help me or help my journey. And so it's led me to Olympians, UFC – uh, championship fighters, uh, David Goggins, the, one of the baddest men on the planet. Yeah, I've met um, him, yeah. Yeah, all these incredible people just from that kid from a small logging community, community shooting a bow and arrow to all this. And, and like what I say is if I can do it, anyone can do it because I, I didn't have any, any uh, advantage. And, you know, and it, you could see your diet, what you eat, you know, what you go through, how you train. A couple of things. I'm, I'm reading about Teddy Roosevelt right now, and he grew up a sickly kid who got beat up a lot. And he said, mm-hmm. I, I naturally got scared, but I taught myself to not be scared over and over again. I kept practicing mm-hmm. not being scared to the point where he's fighting a war and not afraid to lead an army into battle. He says you can learn bravery. You can learn courage. You can learn endurance. You, you believe that, obviously. That's why you wrote the book, and that's why you do what you do. 
Yeah, and I, I have uh, at least one quote by Teddy Roosevelt in that book just because he, he did set the example for so many men. And I knew of his, his upbringing, and it's so true. I mean, you're capable – your destiny is in your hands. I mean, you don't have to be what you've always been. You can change, and I'm proof of that. And uh, it's led me to some incredible people. That, and I, I love learning from their journey also, so I've shared some of that in the book. But what a, what a special time to be alive, to be able to reach out. And you know, we can talk, and we can talk about this and maybe impact others um, along the way. And I don't know, it just feels like a, a blessed time, definitely. So Cameron Haynes is our guest. His book is out. It's called Endure, How to Work Hard, Outlast, and Keep Hammering. One of your quotes is interesting. Uh, it says, uh, you say, I like walking out of, that, uh, out of that house. It's like a warm, comfortable house. Really no reason to leave, except I don't think anything great happens being warm and comfortable. So you have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations to feel alive. A lot of people try to run from stress. You know, they see the mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg picture on the beach of him having a corona on a lounge chair and say that's the goal. For me, right. that could never be the goal because you, I have to be moving in a certain direction. And I believe that we need a degree of stress in our lives. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, that prepares us. I mean, we, uh, Rogan and I talked about this, I think, yesterday, is that um, you go through these things and you put yourself in these adverse conditions and you train your body and mind how to, how to adapt and how to overcome. And so if you can run, say, 100 miles in the mountains, what is a regular everyday things that happen that seem like a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things aren't, but people blow it out of proportion because their life has been so comfortable. But you learn because of putting yourself in these hard situations that all these little things you've been getting worked up about, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. And so it's just about perspective. And that's why, you know, that quote where I was leaving the house at 245, I like that. I like running by through the neighborhood. I like looking at all these houses that are dark. The people are in there warm and resting. And I, I'm out there grinding. I like that feeling knowing that I don't have to do this and they they aren't doing it. It just gives me confidence that, like, no, I'm sacrificing more. That's why I'm going to achieve these goals. And and to me, that's a good example of it is just running by when I should be sleeping out in the rain. Hopefully, raining would be better. Cold would be good. And then it just feels so much – it feels empowering to me to do it. Now, a lot of people say, well, how do I get started? You know, do you pick up an Anthony Robbins book and start jotting down the, what he's doing or what somebody else in your life is doing? Who modeled your behavior? Do you remember? Um, it mostly, no, I don't really remember that. It mostly was, I just was sick of feeling how I was feeling. I just, I just didn't like it. It's, you know, you'd wake up and it's like, what is, what am I doing? What, you know, I'd go to work, go pick up some beer on the way home. And that was, is this, I was just asking myself, is this life? You know, it felt so unfulfilling. So once I, once I started seeing what people were doing and pe- high achievers, then it was just, it changed that perspective. It changed how I, the lens through which I looked at the world. And then I think it was just kind of a, a self-realization, just feeling not good about myself and then wanting to change. All right. So people looking right now and tell you, listen, I don't have the athletic ability or they're a little bit older or they're just not going to be able to bad knees, bad shoulders, whatever it is. Physically, they're not going to be able to do this. This book mm-hmm. is not just about how physically uh, to go bow hunting or become a lumberjack, right? This book right. is about a mindset. So for the pedestrian out there with somewhat of an, um, doesn't have the iron will that you and maybe Joe Rogan have, who who wrote the forward mm-hmm. to your book, 
What are some little things they could do right now to start getting in the right direction? I've also heard things that whatever you want to do, it takes about two and a half weeks to become a routine. So there's, right. is there a, like a step-by-step you can give somebody right now driving in their car that want to begin to change? I, I just say just get out the door. Once you leave that house and get out the door, even if it's just on a walk, everything changes. That fresh air, the sun on your face, maybe the rain on your head, who knows what. But get outside. You're, our bodies are meant to move. We're built to move. We're built for endurance. You know, we might, you know, I wasn't there either at one time, so I understand it might not feel like it. But just get outside and start that journey and, and make it a routine. Just like you, everything you do every day, you have a routine fit in getting outside and walking around the block a few times into that routine. And then pretty soon you'll be going faster. So you can go a little longer and cover more distance. And then maybe you'll be jogging every once in a while instead of walking. And then maybe you'll just be jogging the whole time. Still not fast, but now you're covering more distance. Maybe now you're covering a mile maybe. And then it just goes from there because that's how I started. There was, I I did short races where I didn't know if I was going to finish. I quit races before short races that I'd laugh at now, but, I've been there. I know what it takes. You have to just get out and start moving, make a, a steady improvement each day. Right. And and you say, what does failure look like, and, and how do you judge your success? Um, for the new person or for me? Uh, for you. Oh, for me? Oh, man. I, I, I feel like I've achieved more than I deserve. I mean, it feels like I'm playing with house money. So I'm – I didn't. I don't really deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be talking to you. So I'm just like taking advantage of this. I've had, I've had friends and family who are no longer with us, and I, I'm living my life to honor their memory and just trying to take the most out of each day. Because, like I said, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have people listening to me and and wanting advice. But I do. So I just need to take advantage of it and make sure my life here is worthwhile. And what does success look like? You're just going at it every day? Or, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and do you do you have certain days where you go, you know what, I, I, I failed at this? No, you know, there's, I guess it's different degrees of success. So, yeah, some days might be a, a small success. Like maybe I didn't get in all the miles I wanted or maybe I only lifted and I didn't run or something. But instead of dwelling on I failed. I just say, well, today I just won a little less. You know, I mean, it was it wasn't the big win. It wasn't running a marathon or anything like that. But you just build on whatever momentum you you did um, move in that positive direction. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can as I say, you can dwell on whatever you want. It can be positive or negative. I choose positive. And lastly, uh, you have three kids. They did not have to maybe go into grow up in the turbulent life you had that ended up being your motivation, perhaps. Right. Do they have your will? Do they have your endurance? Drive? Uh, my kids are better at everything than I am. Um, and no, they didn't. And I struggled as a parent to try to ha- I knew life was a challenge. It felt to me and life is competition. And I was a little worried about it because you know, while my childhood was rough, it also made me who I am. So I've, I'm thankful for what I had to go through. And my, I knew my kids weren't going to have that. So I introduced them to more structured challenge just to give them that confidence and, and just so they weren't comfortable all the time. So they both ran half marathons when they were very young. They both run um, marathons. My my uh, younger son, he uh, broke David Goggins' pull-up record. Um that <laughs> David did 4,032 and my son did 4,117 hours. Um, and then my older son is a, 
uh, he's in the army. He's a ranger, and uh, they're tough kids. And they, you know, I, I exposed them to challenge and what it meant to push through, and um, you know what life kind of the, the pressure that life can put on you. I tried to do that more structured, and sometimes I wondered if I screwed up and I was too hard on them. But uh, you know, we do the best we can. I just know I wasn't. I, it wasn't a negative, like an alcoholism type uh, exposure to them. So uh, it feels like it worked. I, you know, yeah. I'm, pr- I'm very proud of them. I think they're, and my daughter is, she's the smartest one in the family. So I don't push her like the boys, but, uh, she, you know, she pushes in another way in academics. And uh, I couldn't be more proud. So like I said, they're better at everything than I am. I'm, uh, I'm very proud and humbled to be their dad. And another reason to pick up your book, because people always want clues to get better. That's what your book's about, always trying to find out how to eat better. What are the what are people that do things better than me doing, and how can I model that behavior? Uh, endure, how to work hard, outlast, and keep hammering. Cameron Haynes, congratulations on all your success. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time today. You got it. Best of luck. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We're going to come back with your calls. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. One thing I could tell you, if, if there's 2.7 million uh, babies out there that are struggling to get formula because they say out of the 100% stock that we usually have, we're at 43%. 43%! Doesn't matter who you know. I don't really, I haven't heard anybody effectively say how to make this formula at home. It's about Abbott Labs, and Abbott Labs has 40% of the entire market. Four companies control almost 100% of the market, and we took forever to go tap into other countries. And now the FDA is ready to greenlight the Abbott Lab over in, um, over in Michigan and then open it up again. So I did not know so much about the FDA uh, two years ago before the pandemic. And now the former FDA director, Scott Gottlieb, talked about what the problem is at the FDA. Uh, he did this on Sunday. Listen. That whistleblower report was head, sent to the head of the Office of Criminal Investigations at FDA, so it does appear to be a sophisticated whistleblower. Remember, this division at FDA is nine people, and it was even fewer people when I was there. It's grown in recent years, and we made some budget requests to increase the size of that group. So the entire industry in this country is overseen by nine people. This has been an under-resourced part of the agency for a very long time, and that's contributing, I think, to these challenges that the agency is facing, trying to exert more vigorous and more efficient oversight. No kidding. Uh, and that's why it's taken forever. And the president coming out saying, I'm not a mind reader. And this press secretary saying, we've been working on this 24-7. It's just a flat out. Number one, it's ignorance. President, again, out of touch. And number two, for his staff, has not been doing this 24-7. We saw that with Pete Buttigieg and his ridiculous comments on Sunday when he was finally pressed on Face the Nation. Uh, Daniel, real quick in Arizona. Hey, Daniel. Hi, good morning, Brian. Thanks for your time today. No problem. Um, I, I want to speak to why that psycho had his weapons and armor, and I really want to I want to get it down to a backstory that's a bigger picture. It's true for Real the quick. United States as well. Yep. Um, there's a big deficit in New York State, and they're talking about defunding the police. It all really bundles down to uh, writing laws that, are, that aren't enforced. The, the fact that laws aren't enforced creates a scoff law environment within the state. I lived there for 35 years. Um, he was armored because the, the New York has legislated itself into lawlessness. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I will let you drill down even further. When the state, to, when the state police are talking to him, what did he say that got them out of, let them believe that he'll be okay? Because clearly he wasn't. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, uh, 1-866-408-7669. You know, we come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world. This hour, we're going to be joined. Uh, well, we're going to get into perspective on what the FBI uh, did or didn't know. Uh, so we're going to do that with uh, John uh, uh, Israeli and as well as uh, Ian Bremer. He's got a brand new book out. If you want to get a perspective on where we are in the world, America's challenges straight ahead in the big picture, I don't think there's anybody with more international contacts and street cred uh, than Ian Bremer. He's got a book to back it up. It's really interesting and readable. It's not for the uh, Harvard scholar. It's for us. Uh, so I hope uh, I think you're going to enjoy that conversation. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeFact. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeFact.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. Title 42 is not an immigration policy. It is not an authority that the Department of Homeland Security holds. But rather, it is a public health authority in the hands of the Centers for Disease Control. So they make that decision, and then we have to respond accordingly. Yeah, this is unbelievable. I mean, Mayorkas is such an embarrassment. He has released 117,987 people just this month into our country, released into the U.S., Uh, removed 113,000, he claims, expelled 96,000 under Title 93. Thank goodness Republican governors are suing to keep it in place under Title 42. Hopefully they win that case. If not, May 23rd, all hell breaks loose at our southern border, even worse than it is right now. Number two. It's hard to tell what Biden is doing, to be totally frank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The real president is whoever controls the teleprompter. If somebody would accidentally lean on the lean on the teleprompter, it's going to be like Anchorman. It's going to be like QQQ ASDF one two three, you know, type of thing. <laughs> Refusing to play dumb. That's how I describe the emergence of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who can't pretend they don't know how bad the Biden bunch are on the economy and the country, and they tee off on the idiotic spending, and they do not want to be the villains in this mess. They keep saying uh, the billionaires have to pay their fair share. Number one. Senate seat is a must. It's an absolute must win. And he'll be able to do it. One of the candidates that Dr. Oz, as you know, is running against, David McCormick, is a candidate of the Wall Street and essentially Wall Street lobbyists. And we don't want people that are going to sell out to China. Prepare for impact. The power of Trump is on the line. As many primaries are on the docket, and he endorsed a lot of candidates that don't have layups. We'll look at the intramural battles as we see it and what it means for Trump and, of course, these candidates in November. Will people pick the best candidate uh, or they pick the one that's going to be the most effective and have the best chance against uh, Democrats or the Democrats against Republicans? Fetterman, for example, is going to get the Democratic nomination prior to his stroke in Pennsylvania. However, they looked at uh, they looked at Connor Lamb and thought, that's a moderate. He's very similar to Pat Toomey. Maybe they could sneak and grab that seat away, maybe hold on to the Senate which is at 50-50, but with the vice president goes 51-50, obviously. So Trump is all in for Dr. Oz, doing robocalls. He called into his rally yesterday, 
Dave McCormick on with Laura Ingram was just on Fox and Friends. Uh, Mehmet Oz was on with us last night, and he was on with Sean Hannity last night. Cut one. This is why Pennsylvania is, is unifying behind me and why we're going to win tomorrow. I have fought for Americans against powerful insiders my entire career. Most recently during the COVID shutdown, so which we did together. During the pandemic, I fought against the mandates that made no sense. You and I got a lot of flack for arguing schools shouldn't be closed. Part of the reason I want Fauci to be fired is he act actively stopped us from talking about these things. And that's a refrain that resonates with a lot of conservatives here in Pennsylvania. Well, uh, that's what he hopes. And he has about a three or four point lead or sometimes a two point lead. Kathy Barnett moved up rapidly and every day something else comes out about her. Some tweets about Muslims, some tweets about President Obama, uh, uh, tweets uh, that she says she didn't want back. They're out of context. Uh, about an adjunct professorship that is not listed anywhere that she said she was in. And then her picture turned up with the Proud Boys on January 6th. Sean Hannity teed off on that on television last night, and Brett Baer inquired about it. Cut five. The pictures do show you next to them. I have um, no idea. I have no idea who these people okay. are that I was walking with who were outside of my friends and, and family who joined me. And yet the media is smearing my name and, and sowing seeds of disinformation in order to suppress my vote and steal this election from me. I've worked very hard to be who I am and to be where I am right now. And just to clarify, you didn't go into the Capitol that day? I said I sang, I prayed, I listened to my president, and walked, and then got on the bus and came home. Wow. Uh, there you go. The other big story is who's going after President uh, Biden because he's been so ineffective. Please tell me one area in which he's actually ahead of the game. Uh, everything from what happened to Ukraine is going to fall in 72 hours uh, to Afghanistan. It was impossible to leave without uh, without smoothly. We know he defied all his generals, and Jake Sullivan never even conferred with our allies, never even told NATO how we were pulling out. They had to find out from news reports. So it was just a disaster on a disaster. He's always been late. It's to the point where Democrats are looking past Joe Biden. Simone Sanders, who left the vice president's office because it's terrible, uh, is a former advisor to Harris, now has her own show on MSNBC, and said this on the New York Times podcast about those who want Biden now. Cut seven. I think is Joe Biden is the current president of the United States of America who has gotten a lot of things done. And if he wants to run for the reelection, I think members of his party that are whispering in the shadows and on and on background and off the record to journalists, like shame on them. If you don't think the president should run for reelection, put your name on that quote. They are about to, but it doesn't do anybody any good to do it right before the midterms. What I thought is so interesting is they keep taking aim. This uh, Elizabeth Warren and President uh, Biden and the the press secretary taking aim at billionaires who don't pay their fair share. They got the oil and gas companies that are hoarding their profits. It is a straw man argument. It's ineffective and divisive and doesn't address the problem. What I love and Jeff Bezos, I don't know him, but I am in awe of his success and his vision, how he left a successful franchise, a successful career as vice president over in Wall Street and said, I get this idea one out west. And started Amazon, and we all know Amazon's one of the biggest, most successful companies on the planet. A lot of people hate him uh, because he owns the Washington Post and tees off on Republicans through a lot of people think his newspaper. I don't know that for sure. But having said that, is it safe to say he's not a lefty? So he's fighting back, and I'll read you what he said. And Elon Musk, again, in the eye of the storm on everything when it comes to buying Twitter and then speaking out, not being invited to the White House, despite him having the greenest car and the most effective electric car 
uh, electrically driven car in the country that is going to be and I think is now affordable for upper middle class and coming down rapidly. Here's what he said yesterday on the All In podcast, Cut 8. I mean, this administration just, just it doesn't seem to get a lot done. Like, and, you know, um, whatever, like the, the Trump administration, leaving Trump aside, I, there, there were a lot of people in the administration who were effective at getting things done. So uh, this, this administration seems just, just to not have like the drive to just get it done. Uh, that, 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 that's, my, it's, it's, that's my impression. And your impression was 100% correct. Because they don't. They want to blame Joe Manchin, not ask people to do things, not get China in line. When they get China on the phone, they don't uh, ask him to do anything. Vladimir Putin, all those uh, pushes to get him not to invade did not work. To build back better, it fails. You have a bipartisan deal. You sit on it for six months. You tell everyone it's okay to go out. In comes another variant. You're not ready for it. You don't have enough tests. What are they doing? They are always late. Cut nine. Man, it's hard to tell what Biden's doing, to be totally frank. Um, you know, like, yeah. Like, I, I feel like it's the, weekend the, at Bernie's. The, 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 the real president is whoever controls the teleprompter. You know, it's like, it's like it, the, what, the path to power is the path to the teleprompter. You know, like, what, what, because that then he just reads the teleprompter. So, you know, I, I do feel like, like if, if somebody would accidentally lead on the, lean on the teleprompter, it's going to be like Anchorman. It's going to be like QQQ, ASDF, one, two, three, you know, type of thing. And when he goes off the prompter, he gets himself in trouble because that and they, their answer is to keep him away from everything. I mean, I'm watching him in Buffalo and his wife looks so nervous. He's going to say something. She's like pulling him everywhere. Looks like he doesn't want to be around them. I don't want to judge other people's relationships, but people had no problem judging Melania and President Trump. But she's never with him. When she's with him, she's shouting instructions at him like he's a child. And that's a guy in charge of our country who seems to be uh, alone almost all the time. So what do I mean about Jeff Bezos? So Jeff Bezos, they keep saying and calling out he doesn't pay any taxes. That's just not true. Listen, if there's a way for billionaires to pay to not pay themselves $100,000 and just buy a yacht uh, by taking out a loan on their companies, we know that happens. Uh, I am not going to go to a bat for billionaires, but I am in awe of what they do, the jobs they generate, and the, what they do for our economy, which makes us different. We have to be able to let entrepreneurs be entrepreneurs, let them win, let them lose, uh, uh, train others to follow in their footsteps. So Jeff Bezos gets vilified because the president of the United States keeps on saying, you got to pay your fair share. He says, look, look at a squirrel. This is the White House statement about my recent tweets. They understandably want to muddy the topic. They know inflation hurts the neediest most. But unions aren't causing inflation. Wealthy people aren't causing inflation. Remember, the administration tried to add $3.5 trillion to spending. They failed. But if they had succeeded, inflation would be even higher. He believes it's a 40-year high because of the spending. And Bezos said flat out that Joe Manchin saved his administration by not letting him do it. In fact, he said this uh, yesterday. Um, uh, he said Bezos fired back at referencing the Department of Homeland Security's disinformation board. He said the newly created disinformation board should review this tweet. And it was the above board saying uh, bring on a bring down. A fa- uh, it was above. It was this tweet. You want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. That set Bezos off. He's like, do you know how much I'm paying by the employees I have, by the places I rent, by the what I do through commerce from my drivers on down? That's where he pays it. He doesn't pay it in his own personal wealth 
perhaps they found a way around that. You want to address that? It's not going to come from Joe Biden's tax genius. Trust me. one 408 When we come back, uh, I want to go inside the Durham report and how much the FBI knew and didn't know and what it means uh, for the court trial that's going on right now. The jury's been uh, been picked, and there is testimony on Michael Sussman happening today. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. When he was at Susquehanna High School in Conklin, uh, his post-graduation project was murder and suicide. So the state police did respond. He was taken to a, a facility. I'm not sure if it was a mental health facility, but he spent a day and a half there. And obviously that goes to show the uh, lack of resources that not only New York State has, but the, and the entire nation has for uh, mental health facilities. And then um, the fact that he wasn't put it, uh, on a NICS um, uh, list, the, uh, the uh, gun dealer lawfully sold the, uh, the firearm to this gentleman, and uh, he slipped through the cracks. And I could understand the, the anger from family members because, you know, that's unacceptable. Everything stopped in 2021 when he was interviewed for his mental health, for murder-suicide uh, thought, thought patterns. He was let out. Parents didn't do anything. He went on much of scouting missions, up to uh, hours trips up to Buffalo. And this 18-year-old ended up being a mass killer. Uh, John uh, John uh, Yannarelli joins us now, retired FBI guy, member of the executive staff of the FBI Cyber Division. John, when you hear this, from what we know so far, where was the ball dropped that allowed this killer to kill? Brian, the ball was dropped in a couple of places. First of all, this guy was evaluated, put in a psychiatric hospital. There should have been some notification put in the system that would have prevented him from buying the weapon legally. The gun store owner did his due diligence and sold the weapon because there was no record of it. Anybody who's been in a psychiatric hospital for a period of time, and especially so recently, should not be able to purchase weapons. Likewise, this guy was posting stuff right up until this event happened. All of that is out there, clearly seen by people on social media, yet people need to pick up the phone and call law enforcement. There may not be enough to arrest him based on that, but there could have been intervention. He could have been contacted, et cetera, and you never know what that might have prevented. You just don't know where the family is probably your first line of defense, and they seem powerless or disinterested from what we know so far. Right. The reality is you've got kids, and even if they're already 18 and adults, they're still your kids. You've got to be on top of what's going on. You've got to be proactive. Most parents today want to know what their kids are doing, and especially when it comes to social media. If you're not looking at that, if you're not keeping tabs and you're not continuing to guide and direct your children, you're being remiss. And this is something that how could you not know what's happening with your child? especially after having been in a hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Uh, right now, yeah. I mean, and that, that's the ramifications. Uh, you let your kid go, he becomes a killer. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, and your name's sullied forever. Uh, so let me, right or right or wrong, John Yannarelli, our guest. So, John, i got to bring you to the dorm report. Uh, how interested are you in what's going on with Michael Sussman right now in Capitol? 
Very interested. Uh, this has been a long time in coming. Uh, the one thing about uh, Mr. Durham is uh, he has been slow but thorough. I think the facts are very clear based on what's been released. The question, of course, is going to be you're trying this case in uh, what is uh, generally a very democratic jurisdiction, which is going to have jurors who are Democrats. Are there going to be people willing to convict? But I think the facts speak for themselves. So do you believe the FBI was really in the dark that Michael Sussman walked in there and says, hey, we're buddies, Jim Baker, for years? I've got to tell you, I'm concerned as an American that uh, this where Russia Alpha Bank is communicating with Trump organization and this guy could be president. Are you, do you really believe the FBI just accepted that at face value and started an investigation? Well, let's uh, remember, uh, there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed here. First of all, Sussman was interviewed by an FBI attorney, not an FBI agent. I think most agents would have seen past this and asked some serious questions, as are the typical agents you see working. Those are the guys who are not political. It's been the administration and leaders in the bureau that have changed the direction of the FBI. Why an FBI attorney decide, oh, I'll take this one and I'll do this interview? He was, in fact, the person that was contacted. But the procedure is you bring in agents, you have agents sit down. You don't – an attorney who's not a sworn agent should not be sitting down and conducting interviews. But right, but they're friends. And if, ba- and if you know that, Baker knows that. So Baker should have said, i got to get an agent in here. I'm not really an investigator. But instead it gets launched, and then it gets leaked to the press, and they do this circular story, investigation, FBI wondering, got information. Next thing you know, we're, uh, we, got, we got the Mueller report, Mueller investigation. Exactly, Brian. And this is my point, that the system did not operate as it's supposed to, as it is designed. And the responsibility for that lies with the FBI attorney who broke protocol, who didn't have agents do this. And yes, he knew the subject and was friendly with the subject. That's another reason. If you're a friend of mine and you want to come in the office and give me a statement, I don't want to be influenced because you're my friend. I I bring in agents to do the investigation. He's the author of Disorderly Conduct, How to Spot a Terrorist. John Yannarelli, retired FBI, member of the executive staff, the FBI Cyber Division. Thanks so much, John. We'll talk to you again. Thank you, Brian. You got Ian Bremmer next. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. What a strategic failure for Russia. I mean, one of the objectives they had in in the invasion in Ukraine was to make certain NATO was contained and also weaken it because it wouldn't have the resolve to respond effectively. And look what's happened. NATO is expanding with Finland and Sweden, overwhelming uh, population polls in those countries are supporting joining NATO. NATO was strengthened as a result of it, not just expanding. And Russia has 40,000 U.S. NATO troops in Eastern Europe in NATO countries that were not there prior to the invasion. So, yes, a major turnaround uh, for NATO, for sure. That is General Jack Keane yesterday talking about things on the ground. You know he's the, he does that, uh, that ISW, the International Study of War, and he puts together... Uh, a great analysis on a daily basis on what's happening, maybe two or three times a day. 
Uh, Ian Bremmer also over the war and what it means. And so far, we would say that's a positive for the West overwhelmingly for NATO. Ian's the president of the Eurasia Group and author of a brand new book. This week, it's out, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. First, Ian, on what's happening with NATO there might be something. Uh, there must be. There might be sand in the gears. Turkey says, "I don't know if I want to accept those two countries." Where's that going? Well, the foreign minister came out at the same time uh, and said uh, that uh, this is not final and that uh, there's a way that we can work together. He didn't say no. He said, "I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not positive about it yet," which is which is a sign for. Turkey's economy is falling apart, and they want to use this as some leverage uh, to get some goodies uh, from the Swedes, from the Finns, and and from the other NATO countries. And I, I suspect, in fact, I feel quite confident that this will not be an issue by the time uh, the the NATO allies all meet at the Madrid summit, uh, where they'll need to confirm this uh, come end of June. And did you ever, you know, you're great at predicting where we're going and where the trends are and seeing the long form. That's a lot about what your book's about. But when you have Sweden and Finland, these are two huge assets to NATO, correct? They are. I mean, they're not huge economies, but they spend a lot on their military. They've got good preparedness. They're very multilateral in orientation. Um, and, of course, in terms of Finland, you've got a massive land border with Russia itself. Um, your general at the beginning of this segment made it very clear. This has been a massive own goal, a huge geopolitical miscalculation by Putin. And as a consequence of that, this is precisely a crisis that the West is using to make NATO stronger, to enlarge it, to make the EU stronger, more committed to their own defense, um, and, uh, and also even to get Democrats and Republicans in the United States to agree on something. Nancy Pelosi goes out to Kiev and expresses all that support for Ukraine. Mitch McConnell does the same damn thing a week later. I mean, seriously, that's because of Putin. And that it, that's the West taking advantage of a crisis that is on the global stage. So we see this general speak out before, I think, think defense ministers speak out over an hour and break down Russia's being isolated, how they've failed in the field, how their military has not added up, how Ukraine has fought and the gains, the minimal gains they have made. What does that mean in the big picture when the Russians on state news get the real facts? Yeah, well, I mean, it was very interesting to see um, that there was a member of Russia One, which is state television, actually saying how badly this is going. And, you know, part of it is that Putin and the Kremlin are trying to prepare the Russian population for what will be a longer war, what will be a lot of young Russian men coming back in body bags. Um, and they're not prepared to give up anytime soon. But, but I want to be clear. The isolation of Russia from the West, not from everyone in the world, not from China, not from the developing world, but from the West, is permanent. The freezing of their assets, the end of their ability to export energy, which is getting tighter every day, the freezing out of their oligarchs. And, and you know, it's not, it's not as if China doesn't matter. Of course China matters. But when you look at Russia's population, when you look at their infrastructure, when you look at their trade, it's all oriented towards the west of their country. It's going towards Europe. So the fact that a G20 country has basically been forcibly decoupled from, from the wealthy economies of the world is unprecedented since the G20 was established and is a really, really big problem for Putin. And I believe it when we saw Europe. I only started to believe it when I saw Europe started to wean themselves off natural gas and oil. And the Russians in a, inexplicably started it. 
with Bulgaria and Poland saying, hey, we're, we're going to start to cut you off in Germany, you're next. That forced Italy to go to Algeria and other countries say, you know, UAE, hey, guys, how do I how do I how do I fill the gap when the Russians cut me off? So all the yep. things that we've been asking to do, you know, uh, obviously, Trump was one of the most vociferous in saying, why are you using Russian oil and gas, you can't depend on them while we tried to defend you. You see what they're doing in Georgia. You see what they're doing in Ukraine. And yet you still depend on them. Now they're cutting them off. And I'm thinking to myself, does Vladimir Putin know that he th- these are his best customers and that is his best source of revenue? Yeah. I mean, of course, it's been decades now where, there, where the Europeans have increasingly not paid attention to their own national security, not paid for their own defense, very happy with the U.S. provided NATO umbrella and said, oh, well, you know, energy is cheaper from Russia. Let's just do that. And you're right. President Trump was deeply skeptical. He pushed the Germans in particular very hard. And Angela Merkel basically said, no, no, we're not going to deal with this. The, The fact is that now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, the Europeans are taking the cost. They are providing the sacrifice. We've asked them to take on more for how many generate for for decades now and now they're doing it they're the ones that are going to be spending a lot more for their economies and the americans are going to help we're going to sell them you know more lng for example they're the ones that i mean germany is doubling their defense spend and we should applaud it's late but we should applaud the fact that the europeans are sacrificing and the europeans will end up not only as better allies but we will have a stronger transatlantic alliance and a stronger alliance that isn't just about the transatlantic. We talk about pivoting to Asia as if that means we don't care about Europe anymore. This NATO summit happening in Madrid, we're inviting our Asian allies to come. They're coming too. So this is actually the beginning of greater integration of all of the wealthy countries in the world that share fundamental values and systems. I, I can't overstate how important that is. I hear you. Uh, see, what, Ian, you do is uh, you get us out of the play-by-play, and you say, look at the big picture. This is where we were. This is where we're going. This is what you should worry about. This is what you should not worry about, and yep. which leads us to China and what your book is about. I got through a lot of it. it uh, obviously, it's what I like about it, too, is, I mean, this is for the general public. Your book is not written uh, for this uh, Harvard professor who's got five people who matches or her intellect. This is written for something even I can understand. Uh, you write the power crisis, how three threats in our response will change the world. And you talk about the China threat, which uh, I brought up with Josh Rogan yesterday, and I think you respect his reporting, especially as it do yep, with, with, uh, with China. And here's what he said. We have to keep our foot on the neck of the Chinese Communist Party so that they can't help the Russians as we try to fight the Russians. And the one thing that is 100 percent for sure, and this is what I wrote about last week, is that Xi Jinping looks at Ukraine and he says, OK, I'm not going to make those same mistakes in Taiwan. And that's what we really should be scared about, because in a year or two years or three years, whatever he makes his attempt, and he will make an attempt, he's not going to make the same Putin mistakes. He's going to have more defenses against our sanctions. He's going to have more force to bring to bear against the Taiwanese. And we better get ready for that. We better get ready for that quick. I assume you sign on to that. Look, Josh, I like Josh. We're friends. Uh, we talk a fair amount. Um, I, I think that um, the, the Chinese are watching this crisis very closely. And they are learning that, hey, the West responded a lot more strongly than we would have expected. Hey, the, the Russians really don't have the military capabilities. Maybe we don't either. You know, we, It's not like the Chinese have been engaged in a lot of fighting and training. 
um, on the ground. So I think it makes them more cautious about Taiwan. But there's something else I want to say, which is you'll remember on February 4th when Putin traveled to Beijing to announce this friendship without benefits with Xi Jinping. And that was 20 days before the invasion of Ukraine. Well, it's been a couple months since this failed invasion of Ukraine. And I'll tell you that friendship without limits also looks like it's a friendship without benefits. When the Americans told the Chinese, don't you dare break our sanctions, don't you dare provide military support for the Russians because there will be a cost to you, there will be consequences, they haven't done it. They haven't. Well, and they're the still buying their oil. That, they're, they're, buying, they're buying their oil. They're not stopping buying their oil, but they haven't stepped it up at all. They haven't started like trying to invest more in Russia uh, to pick up their economy, despite the fact that Putin is desperate for it. They haven't provided spare parts and supports for Russia's military. And the reason for that is because the Chinese understand that Russia's economy is one-tenth their size, and they need to keep doing business with the Americans and the Europeans, and they don't want to be lumped or tarred with the same brush. And when Xi Jinping is talking to uh, Schultz, the German chancellor last week, and Macron, the French president, he's saying, hey, don't, don't look at us like Russia. Like, we want a ceasefire. You know, we, we want to be constructive with you guys. I'm not saying we should trust the Chinese at all. What I'm trying to say is that this strong, unified response by NATO and by the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Australians that's what the Chinese are paying attention to. And that's why the Chinese, in their actions, have been much less aligned with the Russians in the last couple of months than you would have expected they'd be back when Putin invades Ukraine and he thinks the West is going to be feckless and completely uncoordinated and that he's going to be sitting pretty in Kiev with Zelensky either exiled or dead. I hear you. I hope that is. Well, behind the scenes, you would know uh, better than anybody. Uh, meanwhile, let's talk about some of the principles in your books as it relates to China. You write in 1990 to 2018, the U.S. share of the global economy was 26.4 percent. Uh, it is now uh, to uh, to 23.9 percent. So it dropped. China's share went from 1.6 percent to 15.8 percent. Uh, so they are clearly on the march, no doubt about it. I'm so. And then when you look at the Belt and Road program, how does that play into it and what should we be doing about it? Well, uh, the the Chinese, the growth of China um, in the last 40 years is unprecedented in human history. They're the second largest economy in the world. They are at technological parity with the United States in many core areas, their digital economy, artificial intelligence developments, you name it, uh, you know, facial recognition, voice recognition. They need to be taken very seriously. And if they're investing around the world in infrastructure, if they're trading a lot more with countries around the world and the United States isn't, then that's going to make it a lot harder when we want those other countries to adhere to our rules, when we want them to support our economic principles. So we can't just sit. There has to be a response to Belt and Road. We're not going to contain the Chinese. We're not going to stop them from investing in these countries. We can't do that. But we do need to be not just a destination for capital, which we are. I mean, we are still absolutely the place that people want to invest in as the safe haven. But we also need to be the country that is investing and trading in other economies around the world. And, you know, the whole idea of Build Back Better World, which Biden announced, you know, sort of at the G20, um, there was some of that there, but it's so much smaller than what the Chinese are presently putting on the table. The There's Americans no big have plan to there. be doing more. Right. There's no big but, strategic plan. We're right. so divided. Ian, it makes it harder. 
But don't you think that our greatest asset is the fact that China's not doing it to build up Zimbabwe or these struggling nations? They do it and then take some of their assets. It's basically extortion. Uh, when they do a half-assed job on what they do, whether it's bridges, tunnels, or airports, and you can't make those payments, they either take that, what they built, or they take something else that they want. That'll be our best calling card when we just actually do the job and we don't want a, a pound of flesh. If we're really investing. But, of course, if the choice is China or nobody, then you're going to pick China. If the choice right. is China or the United States, I mean, there are a lot of countries out there that will even take a little discount in terms of rates to actually have access to advanced industrial economies. It's not just about the consequences. It's also better quality of infrastructure. It's better management, yeah. more transparency. Those things matter. But in so many countries around the world, the, overwhelmingly the investments that you're seeing are coming from China, and no one else is close. If you look at the trade patterns, you see that. So you have to recognize that these countries are not thinking about choices between the U.S. and China. They're thinking about this is where the money is. And that's, of course, you, anyone would make that decision. It's not, you can't blame them for that. Right. Uh, you also have another stat that was, that was, I think, noteworthy. A generation ago, 80% of the world's countries traded more with the U.S. than China, 80%. In 2018, China was the larger trading partner with 128 of 190 nations. It yep. also has valuable resources within its borders, including the largest reserves of many strategical, valuable materials like rare earth elements, which include minerals used in weapons and vehicles. So they have a few things going their direction. Look, I mean, uh, two, two things, one positive, one negative. One thing that's really positive is the Chinese have invested so much in the post-carbon energy technologies, in nuclear, in electric batteries, and supply chain for rare earths, in solar, in wind, that the United States, I mean, 20 years ago on climate, Americans that cared about climate was largely, let's save the whales, let's hug the trees. Today, Americans looking at climate are saying the Chinese are going to dominate all of these technologies unless we invest a lot more in them. And that, that doesn't, that's not about a, tr a relationship of trust, but it is about a competition which is virtuous, which is bringing us faster towards being a global leader, maybe the global leader in renewable technologies. That's a good thing to see happen. So, you know, it's, it's useful. The fact that the Chinese are stimulating us to do things that we need to do anyway is mm -hmm. useful. On the technology side, I worry that increasingly the Chinese aren't just investing in and exporting things like money for bridges and roads. They're also exporting surveillance systems, data monitoring. You know, a country like Zimbabwe or a country like Pakistan, their government is very happy to have Chinese data management systems that not only brings them into the 21st century economy, but also lets them monitor anyone that might potentially right. be an opposition figure inside their country. That is a very dangerous thing from the perspective of the U.S. and its allies. Ian Brammer, congratulations on the book. We'll talk to you on Fox and Friends and hopefully on One Nation over the weekend. Uh, it Absolutely. is now out. Uh, it is uh, the power of crisis, how three threats in our response will change the world. Ian, thank you. Thank you, Brett. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, it's not some right-wing takeover, um, as, as say people on the left may fear, uh, but rather a moderate-wing takeover um, and an attempt to uh, ensure that, that people of, of old... Uh, 
you know, political uh, beliefs feel welcome on on a digital town square that and they can express uh, their their beliefs uh, without fear of being banned or shadow banned. Um, and, and and that we, we obviously need to get rid of the bots uh, and, and, and scams and trolls and, and people that are operating uh, huge bot armies in an attempt to uh, unduly influence the, the public opinion. So that is uh, Elon Musk, and I think he's doing great work. I mean, he's obviously he's got a big plan, and what he's now is trolling Twitter. Those guys that didn't want him, they gave in to him. Now he's saying, I'm not sure I want it, and I think he wants it, but he wants to make sure he knows what he's buying, get a better rate, absolutely. I know uh, Vivek Ramaswamy says I'm so disappointed because I didn't think it was about the money. Elon Musk said it was freedom of speech, but I think he also wants to everyone to know how bad this product is. So if he doesn't buy it, it's going to be left in tatters, so it's smart. Uh, also, I'd like to thank all our guests. Ian Bremer, I think, is one of the smartest, most well-read people and with the greatest connections on the planet. I hope you enjoy listening to him uh, as as well as getting the, the perspective of the FBI about what's going on in Buffalo, which brings me to a special thanks to all my stations. I wish it was under better circumstances, but so glad we could be an outlet uh, for you and your in the region in which you uh, where your antenna is in Walton, New York, WDLA, 1270. WCHN 970 AM in Norwich, New York, and uh, WDOS 750 in Oneonta. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.